0: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy.
1: That's what the poster
0: said? See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13.
1: Each game means a lot. There's only sixteen, or in this case, seventeen, and there used to be twelve, and then fourteen, and sixteen. But as a fan you could go around you can be fanatic obviously but you can go around your your weekly life you got to like wednesday morning to die to digest what happened on sunday or even monday night whatever you got a couple days to really delve into you know, i've read more about it and i've heard more about it and it's tuesday and how did they run this and why did this work it's a- and now starting about wednesday rich it's anticipation now sunday comes and it's christmas
0: And the latest episode of the Voices of the NFL series here on Just Getting Started. I could not be more thrilled to have this man on the show because um, I, quite frankly, can't do anything about the voices of the NFL without the voice of the NFL at the worldwide leader in sports. And certainly the voice of the NFL in terms of calling highlights, as this man has done for so many years and still does on NFL Um NFL primetime. Uh and I I just love this guy. Be able to thrill to be able to have him here. Call him a friend, colleague. He's Chris Berman. How are you, Boom? Good to see you.
1: Hi, Rich. Always a pleasure to be with you. We were colleagues many, many moons ago. Uh, You've gone on to great things and you work too hard, but I'm glad you could squeeze (laughs) me in, pal. It's always a pleasure to see you and best to your fam. We miss you. I miss
0: you too, man. So let's I just jump right into this because I am so fascinated. I've never really have been able to sit down with you and ask you these questions. And, you know, obviously when I first got to ESPN um, in 96, I always wanted to ask you these questions, never really had the opportunity to, but how did you get started, Chris Berman, in your career? How did it all start?
1: I hope I wasn't
0: too menacing for you to uh, to ask those, those no, questions. No, quite the qu- contrary, Chris. You were always available, but I just didn't want to, uh, you know, I mean – you, you were running around. You had a lot going on. and
1: um, Well, we all did. That was the beauty of the place, even when you were here at the start. It still is, but, you know, 80s and 90s, I mean, I digress for a minute. We, we all had a ton to do, and so we all got along great and still do. Um, but it was, as you know, we, we, it was two people doing the job of six, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> right. et cetera as, as you've experienced at the NFL Network at any rate. So went to Brown, um, major in American history um Brown, we have to take ourselves way back and not back, 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 it's not being trite, but you know, late 60s, early 70s, you had college radio stations, you had newspapers. That's really what you had. And WBRU was a 50,000 watt station in Providence, Rhode Island. Like, it was a real station, you know, and. And Brown was also a great school. And, and so I fooled them and I got in and, and got went right up to the radio and got involved and eventually became the sports director, etc. Became the voice of the Bruins and did what you would do at college. I mean, at Brown football, Brown basketball, and even Brown baseball, even though the only people who could hear me were the people actually in the dugout. But, um, uh, but it was experience, right? Yeah. So I'll be quick oh. to get to ESPN. My oh. first job was in Westerly, Rhode Island, great beach town. Um, however, I started, uh, you know, right after graduation. I worked there a year. They were great. I didn't do sports. I mean, a little radio station. I did I was a disc jockey. I did uh, news talk shows. I, you know, the, the one minute when you were reading the five-minute news that I got to read sports was like a highlight, you know? Mm. Uh, I did play How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees like every hour for six months With the, with the Q burns. (laughs) I mean, you know, so when I hear that song, I, I smile, but it's like, oh my God, it's a great song, but oh my God. At any rate, um, uh, it was platinum only by me. I mean, I played it that often. So, um, uh, then I went to a radio station uh, 14 NVR in Waterbury, Connecticut, so a little bit bigger city of, a uh, you know, old New England town of about a 100, 130,000. Among other things today, unheard of then, a sports talk show. Now they're all over, obviously, right. but in 1978, 79, Rich, and it, you'll know who I did it with, that Bob Sagendorf, has a, uh, that's who it was. And... Um, um, there was one in the state of Connecticut, a guy named Arnold Dean, and, and we were on for 90 minutes, Monday to Friday. And he was Yankees, I was Red Sox, he was New York Giants, I was Jets and Patriots, AFL, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, and so it made it for natural, good, at any rate, sports talk, among other things. Then I was fortunate enough to get on the NBC station in Hartford. Um, they... <laughs> It was a UHF station, Channel 30, NBC affiliate, but the weekend sports guy was just Saturday, Sunday, showed up then for $23 a Uh show. $23 a show. You you heard me. After minimum, pal. Um, And so every three or six months, if somebody was good, they would move on to a a full-time deal. And... They looked at my tape. The news director, it's Arnold Klinsky, told me when I applied once before, you're the second best one. Yeah, right. Well, that guy left after three months, and he called me. He goes, can you come in and make another one? I did. So I got on, on weekend Klins? sports in the summer of 79, which was when ESPN was about to start, September 7, 1979. I applied, and rather than send him a tape, I said, just watch. I mean, it's going to be pretty yeah. raw, but watch. Sure. And they looked, they offered me a job, uh, which I started October 1st. Uh, so one month in, um, at the two thirty or then the 3. AM sports center, which it was midnight on the West coast, but you're know, driving home in the snow at four in the morning, you know, your parents thought really like you're doing this, but I primarily did that, but hosted our NFL, uh, uh show, which was not countdown or game day at the time, but look. So I've spent a little time saying it, but this is now 42 years ago. It was my first opportunity to be on TV every day. Uh, We didn't know who was watching. Maybe we were in three million homes then in 1979, 80. But you're doing, A, what has become our profession. You're doing sports on TV and a lot of football every night for a half hour or more. And... You couldn't get that experience at a local station, Rich. You know, you get three minutes at 6 and 11. You know what I'm saying. And we have to bring it down. I'm going on because I want to bring it to your listeners. No, no,
0: no. I'm fascinated by all of this, but I I just want to just go back a little bit here. So you're saying you were, you know, you got a gig in Waterbury, and thus that got you to Hartford, and that – Anybody who doesn't know, those are basically the two largest municipalities surrounding Bristol, Connecticut uh, yeah. on the west and the east. So you're kind of circling yeah. around Bristol there and and you found out that there was this startup for 24-7 sports and you love sports. And so you, you put something in and basically said, hey, get out your rabbit ears and watch – you know, live local late breaking. I'm on, and that's how they discovered you. That's how they they essentially found you.
1: Kind of, that, kind of. Um, I think they were looking for anybody that wouldn't embarrass them, um, because my obviously my TV track record was three months. So that's uh, that would be in horse racing terms a maiden race, right? <laughs> right. So, um, yes. <laughs> so, um, and I, but there I was on the late show first year pretty much by myself but then with tommy mees a lot the god rest his soul and 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 uh and lo and behold i got okay at it uh lo and behold in 1980 or 81 espn was in six million homes or whatever the number was and and you know the rest of the espn story i don't need to tell it um but so i was 24. With a kind of a not a fool, but a kind of a late 70s Ron Burgundy mustache, um, and uh, hey, they worked in the day, okay, yes. and uh, and hair pretty good, not ridiculous, but <laughs> good, it's late 70s, and um, I was on TV, and I was here when there were about 75 of us, wow. rich, 75 people, and everybody knew everybody's name, and. To, to have a hand in the cornerstone of I'm no more important than anyone else and anyone else that worked in the early 80s that helped put this thing on the map for good. But, you know, because I was on the air, more people know me. And the fact that I'm still here from 24, and now I'm 66.
0: Come on now. That's a story Disney would It look, is exa- right? It is amazing. It truly is When was the first time, Chris, where you realized this? This is working. Like, okay, this is coming together, and and you're on you're on your way. When did that first kind of hit you? Was there a moment, a show, or a conversation, well, or anything like that? It's a good question. It, it
1: would be I don't want to say gradually, but it would be in increments. It's different than mm-hmm. gradually. I remember. Uh, Kathy and I weren't, my late wife Kathy and I weren't married yet, but we took a West Coast vacation, 81-ish, or maybe, and before the football season, because then I knew. Um, and going to a restaurant, again, West Coast, so that's who would really be watching. We were, Our show wasn't even on in a rear in the morning yet. And I you know, sat down somewhere, and then, does the Swami want to see the wine list? And I went, what? You know, so you start to get these these inclinations that maybe there's some people like the Moody Blues saying, I know you're out there somewhere. Right. Uh, Letters from uh, uh, from the Midwest uh, fathers changing their baby's diapers. And I went, why would they do that at two in the morning? Like, what's the Mm -hmm. matter with them? You know, then you become a father and you get it, obviously. Um, But I'll give you a funny well, all right, there are a couple. One, you won't be that surprised. One is a really interesting story about ESPN and how I knew. Again, as the, each year goes on, you're recognized in this, et cetera, and, and the players start to know you. And they want to do interviews with you because, honestly, their mom and dad in Mississippi might see mm-hmm. it, even mm-hmm. though they're playing in Washington, D.C. for the, for the then Redskins, right? I remember one in particular. So Jerome Barkham, he goes, my mom and dad will see this. Of course I'll do it. You know, and you reel back a little. So 81, the Swami predicted the 49ers a lot, like every yeah. week, and they were not very good the year before. And we all know what happened. And that was the beginning of everything. I went out to cover the game, which eventually became with the catch, which one of the most famous in NFL history. And, in my beginning years of ESPN, there's nothing bigger. We went to interview the 49ers on Friday. And Charlie Young, the veteran tight end, and Randy Cross, not veteran veteran, but you know had been there a while, lineman, a couple of us lined up the players. And they went, you're the swami. You've been picking us every week. We have as much time as you need. Like, really? And then the catch and this, and of course – Joe and Dwight, the late Dwight Clark, Joe Montana, and the whole team, Coach Walsh. I mean, they let me in, and Eddie DeBartolo, the owner, and we could go on and on and on, and I was I was their age. But they were watching. All right, now I'm gonna give you a story you're really gonna laugh Let's about. Because you're not expecting to hear okay. this. Not about me. Okay. The network story, nineteen eighty-three. The America's Cup, staling, okay? Sailed. Um, This was the one off Newport, which they all were, just about all were then, 83, that the U.S. eventually lost in the seventh race to Australia with the winged keel. I know I'm really going back. It was a Tuesday, you know, at four o'clock, three o'clock. A Providence TV station, I want to say WJAR, I'm not sure, had a helicopter hovering over the race and they were broadcasting it throughout Rhode Island. We tapped into that feed and showed it without any, hey, we're going to have the America's Cup. It was just on, okay, at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, match at race seven. And it rated back then, people thinking, well, geez, would a sailboat race be on? The, who knows how many sailboat racing fans there were in 1983? They tried us. Be like a big news event back, you're going to CNN in the 80s. They're it, right? We got a two-point something on an unannounced sailboat race, admittedly the biggest one, and historic, and it, it was a okay. People are looking to us if something happens in sports, yeah. taking a shot. And if we give it to them, whether it's SportsCenter or whatever else, they're going to be with us. I mean, so that was a, you weren't expecting that story no. but I'll never forget that you got to be kidding me.
0: Well, I mean, um, I I remember when again when I got there in 96 and I was learning about the history of the place and and how, you know, the America's Cup and Dennis Conner and all of that stuff was very big in the ascension and the growth of ESPN as as as, as a spot where you know you might not find the traditional four american sport you know if you're looking for something outside of the traditional four american north american sports you can find it and then obviously sports center became a place for you to go and watch stuff and seeing you there and the rest of the crew that was there at the time um it was something for me certainly when i got to college in 1986 This is what I wanted to do. I knew, I knew it on the spot. Like this is for somebody. I grew up in New York. I was a Marv Albert guy. I was a Howard Cosell guy, uh, a Jerry Gerard guy. If that name rings a bell to you from channel 11 WPIX in New York, he was kind of doing some sports center stuff locally. I, I, I did stand up in college and I'm like, this is it. And part of that was also born out of watching you, not just on sports center, but doing the draft and doing the nfl draft and i'm wondering when did espn truly show up on the nfl's radar screen as a viable partner for for well
1: the draft was and you know the, the backstory that chet simmons then our president told pete rose that we'd like to televise the draft and he asked why right. um but we did um So the draft was watched by, as I quickly found out, because I'm calling the GMs, et cetera, for information, which you could get if you knew how to do it and you knew how to protect it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because not many people were doing it. And so, Rich, I knew that the football people were watching, okay? So at least for the draft. Now, until... Game day, which, of course, now is Countdown, started in 85. We did another little NFL show, but but we knew they were watching. Um, I remember the Cowboys went out of their way at a game I went to in the early 80s to make Tech Shram available for me, little Chris Berman, on the 50-yard line before a game at San Francisco, not the catch, but a couple years later, I think it was a Monday night or other, you know, et cetera. And... So they knew, I started myself, started going to NFL owner's meeting, could have been 84 mm-hmm. and you know, when Art Rooney, the, 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 Art Rooney senior comes over and extends his hand and introduces himself. Hey, you're for the sports people, your network. We're, we're really, not to mention Al Davis, who I'd met earlier, but I don't know about me, but I'm the I'm a conduit at that point at those meetings. And so you knew they knew. And although he didn't tip his hand, Pete Rosell obviously knew because, and for him to take a chance in the league, for him to take a chance at 1987, Adding a Sunday night game, the last it was after the World Series was over. So it was the last what eight weeks of the season, starting Halloween ish, and be available on. The, let's and the first game was uh, was the Patriots and the Jet and the Giants, I think. So uh, it was on a local station in each of the markets who might not be getting cable. But to put a Sunday night game eight weeks a year—I mean, they were at Pete Congress. You can't do it. It's got to be—it's a for him to take a chance. Uh, I don't know if you met Pete. I'm sure. You, I mean, you got to know him well. I'm sure you did. I did. Um, I was honored that he, for whatever reason, liked me. And um, for him to have the vision, representing the league in '87, to make that a a brave new television world other than just the AFC network, the NFC network and Monday night football. And then we're going to have eight games on cable and we're going to get this show called NFL primetime, which was Steve Bornstein, who was not our president yet, but as you well know, our programming guru and way up there and going to be president a couple years later. And he and Pete Rosell thought that up as part of the deal. And we're going to do a show that no one's seen because nobody as you know, as everybody knows, you saw three games. Well, Seattle's playing Arizona. It was 45-42. Nobody saw any of that. Here you go. Here's five minutes or whatever. And that was not a big part. Well, it was, as history goes. So, so I give, so you, P. Roselle didn't just wake up in April of, or whatever it was in 87 to decide, ah, let's go with Cable. In retrospect, we know they were paying attention for two or three years, Rich. It's
0: really an amazing story. And it, it's something that people shouldn't take for granted because, you know, everything that's done that winds up being a smash hit, I think, in our business initially starts as a risk that is ultimately a calculated one, you know? And I, I, I really believe that, Chris, you know, I've been saying that for a long time and you know, I remember when Bornstein, you know, hired me to, to be the first guy at NFL network and then put us at radio city for the draft. Um, and I was across the way from you, you know, in the same mezzanine. And I think you might've been the one to say it was like that, uh, Looney Tunes cartoon where, you know, the dog and the, and the Wile E. Coyote are punching <laughs> in the clock at the same, you know, <laughs> at the same spot and then going to their different ways and obviously competing. But, you know, it was it was huge for me. Uh, it still is. It still is because of, you know, the stage that you set and the standard that you set and and how remarkable it is, is just it's It's the off-season Super Bowl. There's just no other way to put it, Chris. There's no other other way to put it, you know?
1: Well, I don't know what I said. There are a lot of people, as you know, that that, that people's names that that they'll never know that were as, as instrumental, if not more so, than me and those on the air. And Mel, I mean, we could go down the list. But it was... Look at how the draft has grown every couple of years. It's it's unbelievable from Little Sheraton or wherever it was. Uh, we, we're, we're reading the Manhattan phone book in the, in the early 80s um, to then the Marriott Marquis. Like that became okay. Like this is something. And then we had 200 people up there, right? Like, oh, and then, you know, a couple dressed as a New Orleans saint and one dressed as, a, you know, one cowboy hat, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, and then to other places in New York and then Radio City. When we hit Radio City and you brought that up, then it was, so wait a minute now, you know, my folks grew up in New York. Like they told me all the shows they'd seen there, you know, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, do we, I mean, we could go on and on and on. I don't want to bore everybody, but all the, you know, all the, the, uh, the big band sounds and et cetera. And, um, Louis Armstrong. I mean, and yet here's Rich Eisen later on, and here's Chris Berman at Radio City. What's wrong with this sentence? Frank Sinatra, Chris Berman, Rich Eisen. What, which two of these do not belong? Right, the old. Thing. But it was really cool,
0: and of course, it, it's
1: going on that it leaps and bounds beyond it, and it's it's become a spectacle. Um, but still, how you build a football team when you get right down
0: to it. It is. And everybody's O and O and everybody thinks everybody's been drafted as the next great, but no, it's all good. So, um, so Chris, let me, w- what do you think makes the NFL work? I mean, you've been, you have been there and done that and you have launched shows and launched obvious, as we just discussed with the draft, um, uh, tent poles, uh, of, of the annual calendar that we all, um, we all now take for granted. So what is your, it's one of the greatest narrative generating machines in the history of anything, but what, what do you think makes the NFL work in a manner that you have been, uh, you know, a voice of their, of the league and the the sports popularity and ascendancy for the last 40 years. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's a, and that's a good question. Um, I was young, obviously when it, the 60s, television would be your first kind of answer, although that's not to – we're taking it to today. I mean, that's not to put what <laughs> Mr. Hallis and Jim Thorpe and, and, you know, Red Grange, et cetera, et cetera. I know the history of it. You know the history of it. And I'm, we are forever fortunate that they – I mean, making nothing, playing in – whatever, uh, that it got to the 60s. And then here's TV. And it was a TV sport. You know, you could sit and watch, and there's the field, and there are the colors, and there, and it's on a Sunday. And I'm going back. You know, it's it's a gathering point. I think, so it's a long answer. I no. don't want to be that long. Um, you know, the sitches is a long time ago. But that's when TV kind of exploded, and that's when football started to explode. And then... You know, I did it, it surpassed it's your baseball there's no it's not like a race, like a like a NASCAR race where I'm what lap did it, but um I think part of it is each game means a lot. And I, I think if you get to the bottom of it, each game means a lot. There's only sixteen or in this case seventeen and there used to be twelve and then fourteen and sixteen, but play once a week. And you blow one or two of them, and you've changed, you've altered your team's run. So that's part of the allure. As a fan, um, I used to explain to people I thought you could go around – you can be fanatic, obviously, but you can go around your, your weekly life. You got to, like, Wednesday morning to, di- to digest what happened on – let's just keep it at Sunday for now for simplicity – Sunday or even Monday night, whatever, um, what your team did. You might have had to go to work early Monday morning. You got a couple days to really delve into, you know, I've read more about it, and I've heard more about it, and it's Tuesday, and how did they run this, and why did this work? It's a, and now, starting about Wednesday, Rich, it's anticipation, right? It's not baseball. One of the beauties of it is it's every day, but part of football is, oh, we're going to play this, you know, the so and so's, and we don't like them, and they beat us the last three times, and we're good enough this time, and it's Wednesday evening, and you're starting to get ready for that game as a fan. Talk about as a fan, and so anticipation, I think, is is a big part of it, maybe overlooked. Uh, I I think you agree. Um, and then now Sunday comes and it's Christmas. Every Sunday, right? And um, so it's a, that's just from a fan's perspective. I don't mean this. You're deep into this, that, and the experience of still going to a game, if you're lucky enough to do that, or you're in remote areas and you wouldn't miss a game of the Chicago Bears. I mean, whatever. Uh, And you can see them. And it's, and there's something special about, each game meaning something. The season lasts, for argument's sake, four months, not including the playoffs. And it it starts to go through. And you can't go in a lot of the country outside and do things like you'd like to do in the summer. I mean, you're in L.A. It's a different story, but you know what I mean. And, I mean, football was born in those other areas where other than go to a stadium in a coat and whatever, we're not doing a lot of stuff outside unless we're skating on a pond. So I think... It's still special. I think it's – and, of course, the unknown. I mean, we can boil down why the game is so predictable to one thing, Rich. The ball is not round. Uh, yeah. So
0: – and that's why they play the games if somebody That's wants why it. they play the games. I love that. So uh, in, uh, in bringing this uh, somewhat full circle in a way, one last question about – your gigs, and then just to wrap up the whole conversation about your career and and the best advice you've gotten, which is what I've been asking everybody in this podcast series. But the Pro Football Hall of Fame and being the MC for the big day for the Enshrinement Day. Um, what's your favorite? Give me a good story. Your favorite story involves a Hall of Famer, whether it's you know Jim Kelly creating that bar that's off to the side because he wants to make sure the long day goes a little quicker. I don't know, and anything anybody you've met from over those years, um, that you that you can share with somebody about being the MC in Canton year in and year out.
1: Well, first of all, as you know, because you MC that the 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 gold jacket dinner is so beautifully, it's an honor just to be in our roles, Mm -hmm. right? Like we'll start with that, right? I I speak for you. I know that we've talked about it many times. Um, I've been lucky enough to do that for. 20 years or 22 years, whatever it is. Um, and if they ask, I'll do it every year. Um, they can wheel me up there and I'll do it. Um, hearing. Off to the sides, as you know, and our your viewers know. Um, all the Hall of Famers are up there. So there's stories I can go way back. But I'm just going to go back three or four years Jim Brown doesn't make it every year, he, he, he's okay. he comes some, but every running back, this is during one of the commercial breaks, so really see it wasn't really seen on TV and I have the picture on my phone, I'm not in it, don't get me wrong, um, every running back who was up there, from Emmett to, there might have been like 12 of them, only the running backs, gathered around the big kind of chair that Jim is in, is on the mm-hmm. stage. Everybody handed their camera to somebody taking the picture their phone. And they were – didn't matter that Emmett had the most yards or uh, – I, I think this was a year that a lot of them came. I, you know, I'm, I'm going through the great names. I mean, Walter, of course, passed. Barry, you know, I don't know. The, uh, Barry might have been there. Sanders. I mean, Franco, we there. yeah, There's I'm
0: there. sure. And Franco and Marshall. Yeah, Franco, all of, them, of course.
1: Yeah. All of them. Leroy Kelly was there. I mean, I'm, I'm going to miss a ton. They all got in the picture with Jim Brown. It's like they were kids. I got him on Jim Brown's yes. team. You know, and to this day, I know our youngsters don't. I, I have a hard time putting anybody ahead of him as the greatest football player of all time. I mean, we can debate it, and that's what's fun. But, I mean, what Tom Brady's done and, and you know, Jerry Rice has done. And, I, I mean, we Joe Montana. But, I mean, Jim Brown is like. That's it. Whoa. That's it. It's like saying Vince and Marty, right? Like, whoa, 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 whoa right? Uh, and a couple others. And so I remember that. It's fun personally for me to give the this, this speech, speech, minute, minute and a half, but I try to throw in something, especially the guys that, the guys going in now for a long time, we've covered from, you know, their whole career. Hey, Brett Farber and I got to be such great friends, and still are through the years. That, um, but to tell a little story in my little intro before we go to the tape, and then Brett or whoever gets up there and speaks, and to look back at them over there. And I remember in Brett's case, he's off to the side, and I went, "You know where I'm going here, Brett?" You know, and he starts laughing like a little kid. And I, I told the story of, but that that's more of a personal. The Jim Kelly. So
0: Jim Kelly, you mentioned him, was the first year that we ever had it in the stadium. Too many people came. Um, too many. He's so popular from right Buffalo and Pittsburgh, and right, you could draw a line from Buffalo to Pittsburgh, right to Canton. They all just, yeah, they all just came right. They down. could come that. They could come that day, Rich, or some of them drove their campers there on Thursday,
1: right? Like it's a. And I walked out just to tap the mic like 20 minutes before the whole thing started. So Jim went in when in 0-2? I mean, I'm I'm doing the math. He retired '96. 90. It was '01, 2 But you get the mm-hmm. point, right? Um, and I just tapped the mic, and being a little bit identified with Buffalo, yes, um, the place started going nuts. I went, "Oh, this is a Buffalo home game." I get it. It was in the afternoon then. Um, um, One more that I'll tell you, it used to be on the steps of the hall. I'm going back a long way. And when a Steeler went in and they went in one or two every year, Pittsburgh's even closer than Buffalo, right? To Canton. There, There was no room there on the steps of the hall at noon. By the way, it was hot. Okay. All the time. Hot. Uh, this blazer would have been a darker blue by that time. If, if, if we were going back to those days, because I would have sweated through it. But um, there are people hanging off the interstate. You know, when Terry Bradshaw would go in, and, or, or I mean, name your Steeler and uh, Franco. I mean, just name him. And 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 I, I want to say a Steeler. I could be wrong. When Joe Montana and Ronnie Lott, they they went in together along with it was on the stairs, people hanging off the interstate, the energy. And that's when the Hall said, yeah, we want to think about a stadium. Mm-hmm. And and then that changed that. I mean, there's so many individual stories, and you're around the players too, but they, they
0: – Chiefs and
1: Raiders from the AFL sitting together and laughing. I love it.
0: I'll tell you this story um from my first year at the hall when I had just, you know, left ESPN or parted ways however you want to put it and and the first assignment for NFL Network was to go to the hall that summer of 2003 and I'd never been I'd covered Cooperstown before and Cooperstown is like um you know like a Rockwell painting, you know? It's it's this one stoplight and it the, the 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 golden light when the sun sets, right? And uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is, as you point out, by I seventy seven. It's football. There's an interstate. There's trucks going by. There's like the the figurines that look like the thing from the Fantastic Four on the side of the building. You know, the juicer. You know, it was. It's just totally different from Cooperstown and experience as you can possibly get. And it was kind of jarring for me to see that. Um, and so we sat down with a bunch of Hall of Famers to record some stuff that we wound up putting in the can to use the next year when I was still employee only number one and we, we needed to put stuff on the air as programming when we flew out to Ohio to do the event. So it was filler programming that we were shooting a year before. So I'm telling the story because again, it involves Jim Brown to bring this all full circle and, and the, the immense respect that everybody who's in that building has for Jim Brown. Okay. And that, I sat down with Ronnie Lott and Merlin Olson and asked them about the toughest, biggest hit they ever delivered on anybody. And Merlin Olson said the biggest hit he ever delivered. I can't. I'm so excited to be telling you this story. The the, the biggest hit he'd ever delivered on anybody was Jim Brown, that the Browns came to the L.A. Coliseum and all of them, the whole, you know, four horsemen were saying all week we're going to kill him. And you never got a good shot on this guy ever. He was like, you never got a good shot on Jim Brown. And here he was coming around the end and Merlin had him. He had him and he blew him up. And Merlin Olsen said he hit him so hard. He had visions of when he got up, seeing Jim's eyes rolling in the back of his head. And when Merlin Olsen got up, he said he watched Jim Brown go another 70 yards for the touchdown. <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard.
1: That's, that's great. Well, I'll put it. one home. At,
0: that's that's it. So that's it.
1: When when they had the must have been rich the seventy fifth. Oh no, that was it. That was the sixty three.
0: So the now 50th anniversary. Are, it was the fiftieth anniversary. That that the first yeah. year that I was there and everyone was there. It was like literally Everybody. a night at the museum. The busts came alive that time yes Yes, i was there for that unreal
1: and and i was the mc early and it was noon we didn't know what order there would have been joe horgan who is the greatest is the greatest uh you're the hall the curator forever and ever and ever they would come out no i recognized there were a hundred of them and i i know a lot of them but i'm also facing the crowd and i'm looking and who and so We have no idea that it's when they get off the bus. And I think the first three were like icons. Um, I don't know if Merlin was one, but Roger Staubach was Mm -hmm. one. Uh, Gail Sayers was one. And it was another Merlin. It could have been like a Bob Lilly or, you know, a... You knew who it was. It was an icon. And... And then there was nobody, and I had the car, but I looked at the crowd, and they're going, just Ryder Staubach, Gail Sayers. I don't think it was Joe yet, Namath. Might have been. I went, how are we doing so far? You know, because <laughs> oh. they, 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 they had not had that that anniversary yet, and Otto Graham came Some out, odd. you know, I and mean, we could go on and on and on, and... and uh, he leaned over. I had known him a little, you know. This is Otto Graham now, you know. It's before my time, and although I met him when he was athletic director at the Coast Guard, but uh, there's a little interesting one. But um, and he leaned into my ear and cracked me up. Like this is rough, tough Otto Graham, and he said something that was it was, you know, it, the lead, the busts came alive. I mean, and we still have that to this day. When when they come back and a big player goes in. Um, and it's with reverence. The day is with reverence, and I hope that the fans at home, though, do watch it. It's really the beginning of the it season. I, I know there's yeah. a game that's now before it. I get it. But when you see the legends come back um, and others who have passed away we're talk about them, okay, it's August 6th or whatever it is, and here's football. Here's football for the next six months. Have a good yeah, day.
0: Yeah, the other the other sports either hold it in the off season or in the middle of the season. The NFL holds it at the outset of a season, celebrating the past, remembering the past, honoring the past, and then celebrating the fact that it's a return. It's There's nothing like it. I know we've been going on and on. I don't want to take up much more of your time, but to finish up, I will ask you the question I've asked everybody that's, uh, that's done this pod and kind enough to do this pod. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten in your career for you? And by whom, Chris? What would that be? Well, no, no.
1: I, I, I mean, we've gotten a lot of
0: it, um, and we needed it.
1: <laughs> um, part of it is be yourself, especially when you're on every day, because if you're just – and I'm not saying that people who are just on, on Sundays could be another person – but if you're on every day and you're not exactly who you are, whether it's a style, somebody w- w- would prefer to get their sports in, in our case is rich or, or not. Um, they can see that you're acting. Mm-hmm. Don't be an actor or an actress, be yourself. Cause if that's not good enough, you can't top that no matter what you, you, you try to do when you're on on a daily basis. Um another a lot came from our very early guys, Chet Simmons and Scotty Connell, um, who were old and old. They were NBC Sports the honchos, they ran it, and then they came over here, and they were here at the very beginning and nurtured us a lot. And I remember the two little things. Um, and I'll go back to both of them. Scotty was more you, you have your, your your idols who are the people that you look look up to in our business I said sure I do and you get rattle off the names Kurt Gowdy Ray Scott Jack Whitaker I and mean, we can go on and on right and they go it's okay Scotty said to take a little piece of 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 them you're not stealing you're anyone that says here's a unique style no if you take a little and you take a little and then you see some others who you might even like and but that's not for me, so don't do that. And now you mix it like a chef, and it becomes you, right? It becomes you. Little of this, little of this, little. Of this, not that, not that. And then bigger part yourself. That becomes you, and grow it. All right, that's one. This is a really interesting one. It's not the. It, it, it's a different thing, but it, it, it. So my first year here, I had a mustache. Okay. Now, 79, 80, you know, sports, the must I mean, I said it was of the time. And Chet Simmons was our president. And he'd see me every now and then. And he'd say, still got that mustache, huh? Like, didn't say shave it. You got to get rid of it, you know. And about the third time he said it, months apart. Still got the mustache, huh, Chris? I went, Chet, it, I mean, is there a problem? Because... No one said it's a problem. He said, I want you to consider something. You pride yourself on content, don't you? Like on what you say, you want people to listen to what you say, right? So if 20% of the people are fixated on the mustache for whatever reason, maybe they like it or not, but they're not listening to you, you have done yourself at this service, not the network, yourself. It's like wearing an over-the-top, and we all do it—a tie every now and then. But they're ten like percent are looking at it. If you value the content of what you're saying, um, then you're then you don't want that on. I said it'll be off That's
0: tomorrow. Right. I was about to say, how fast did you? How fast
1: did you? Well, you know, it'll be. I mean, I was. Now it's at night, so I didn't didn't regularly bring my razor to work, right? And. and uh, There was that. Now, you know, the, um, um, I'll morph into something else. Somebody might've told me that, but, um, but it would be what I would give to others is if it's interesting to you, it's going to be interesting to somebody else. So let them in on what really interests you about a game, a person, a thing you're covering Some of it can be very heavy news. I mean, interesting doesn't have to be fun and games. It can be very bad news. But whatever put your antenna up, you're not alone. Give them that. Give them what's interesting to you. Two things. And I've never forgotten. Two things. I I don't know if anyone in particular told me that, but I try to give that.
0: Chris? And then we'll wrap it up with this two responses to that. One, we had Kevin Harlan who calls the games of Westwood one and his dad, Bob is the, you know, grand poobah for all those years in, in Green Bay. We had him on, he said, Larry King gave him that same advice. Talk about what interests you is what he said. That that's amazing that you, you heard the same thing. And the other thing is I am thrilled to be able to tell you this. This is amazing. Life is amazing. When I got to ESPN, Chris, you did SportsCenter, like, three, four times a year, basically? Like, you, you would pop in? Well, by then, because I was doing baseball, right, no, you yeah. You were doing all right. sorts I of stuff. It. But you would, you would return to your sports center roots, okay? And yes. I was fortunate to be on the schedule for one of those um, shows. When I first got there, I was on the schedule to observe. Okay, they wouldn't. This is before ESPN news where they would throw you on there like I was thrown into the deep end of the sports center pool as soon as I got there at age 26 from Redding, California. But I had to observe. Okay, so I was in my observation period and you were doing a sports center. You won't remember it. I was sitting in a corner or whatever, but I was taking as many mental notes as I possibly could. And your advice that you said to be yourself. You walked in the room of the meeting and the guy that I saw on television and the guy that I thought I knew from television was the guy who walked in the room. And I swear to God, Chris, that I'm like, oh my gosh. Like the guy who is on TV, this is the guy who's here right now. And you were yourself. And I made a mental note of never put on a voice or just sit there and try like... I have to be true to myself. now that was a, a problem when I first started, where I was a little probably too much of myself and too joking and not enough to pull back and less is more and all that stuff. But your advice that you say, be yourself," I took from from you based on your actions, not you giving me that advice directly. And I'm thrilled to be able to close this conversation with that. and that's a fact. you know, that's a fact, Chris. So
1: well that thank you. Well here's the thing, Rich. None of us are are smart enough to be anyone else. <laughs> so if all else fails, you might as well be yourself,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I uh, love it. Chris, you're the best, man. You know, you're and, the best.
1: And if all else fails, like I tell all the analysts that I work with over the years, if all
0: else fails,
1: you know, when things happen live, TV, radio, whatever.
0: Just talk about football. That's it. If it else fails. You're the best, Chris Berman. Thanks for doing this here on Just Getting Started. Thanks, brother.
1: Uh, Thanks, Rich. Nice to see you. I'm I'm
0: proud of what you've done with your career.
1: And uh, um, it's nice to see a a brethren, one of of our brethren, do so well.
0: The one and only Chris Berman. Let me tell you a couple stories about um, Chris and being around Chris as an impressionable 26-year-old. Sports Center anchor coming out of essentially nowhere, as I've told on the story uh, on a previous pod with Jim Nance about my audition and how I got the job there and how overwhelmed I was to go from a small market TV station in Reading to ESPN and now suddenly, boom, you're a colleague of Chris Berman's. And anybody will tell you, and they're lying if they're not telling you this, In the 80s and 90s, anybody who wanted to be a sportscaster flocked to Chris Berman. Just his nicknames, which we didn't bring up with Chris, but just his style, his energy, and what he made ESPN into uh, as something fun, sportscasting and fun. That's something that spoke to me. And... Um, also, the broadcasting style of Keith Olbermann spoke to me as well. So when I got to ESPN, I, you know, kind of flocked to both of them, or wanted to flock towards Chris, but I didn't know him at all. Keith, I did, and I'll tell that story on a on another episode. But uh, the reason why I knew him before, but just to make this a, a shortcut here, is Keith and I shared an agent, the agent who got my contract hammered out for my first deal. When I got struck by lightning figuratively, uh, when getting the job at ESPN from a small market station in Redding, California, I had the same agent as Keith. So I would pick his brain. I felt comfortable picking his brain. And sometimes the advice I got was tough love and very difficult to take. And I'll, I'll tell that on a future pod as well. But, Um, when Mike Tarico's on, I'll tell that story. That'll work out. But at any rate, uh, I asked Keith about Chris because unbeknownst to a lot of people, Keith has known Chris since high school. They went to the same high school together. Isn't that crazy? But so I asked Keith about approaching Chris Berman because I wanted to know more from him. As I just told Chris in this podcast, when he walked into the meeting room, when I was just observing fresh off of being hired before I was put on my first sports center and I'm sitting there and observing and the guy who walked in the room was the same guy I, I knew from television and that's important for anybody out there who's wants to be successful in this business. You have to be yourself. You're your own fingerprint and you know, Seeing Chris be the guy in the room that I saw on TV wanted me to ask him more questions and tips. But again, I mean, I was new there and I was difficult to approach him. So I asked Keith about approaching him and he said, just go up to him. And I'm like, what do you mean? Just go up to him. We referred to Chris Berman, Keith Olbermann. Chris Berman's a two-ton gorilla who asks if it's okay to sit down, is what he said. Like, he's a big, you know, to-do in this shop, the two-ton gorilla of ESPN. But he's nice enough to not just bash people around because he's the two-ton gorilla. He's like, may I sit down, please? He's just a sweetheart of a guy. And so I heard that echoing in my head when I walked into a makeup room shortly after my first few shows on the air. I was doing the seven o'clock Eastern Sports Center on a Sunday night prior to Chris's baseball tonight that he was doing. If you remember, Chris always emceed the Sunday night; he always hosted the Sunday night baseball tonight shows. At any rate, when you walk through the hallways, or at least back in the day of ESPN, there would be, be these banners—ESPN banners. ESPN banners that would be hanging off the top of the prefabricated cubicles that created these hallways in between the massive buildings of the massive complex of ESPN. And there would be on these banners and these are the banners that you see hanging over the side of a, of a baseball stadium when ESPN's broadcasting from there to let you know it's an ESPN broadcast. So, there would be these ESPN banners hung on the walls there with a note from people saying, this is for such and such charity. Please sign if you're an on-air talent. And I would look at that and I'd see Dan Patrick's autograph and Keith Olbermann's autograph and Robin Roberts' autograph and Chris Berman's autograph and so on and so forth. And I thought to myself, you know, can I sign it now? I mean, at what point am I allowed to sign these things? Should I feel comfortable signing these things? You know, I'm just some 26 year old, just fresh out of nowhere. Nobody knows who I am on the air and I'm going to sign it. Like I'm an on-air talent. That's making this piece of memorabilia more valuable. You know, I kind of felt self-conscious about signing these banners and, um, so when I strolled into this makeup room and Berman's sitting there and it's just me, him and the makeup artist making him up, I decided to, to take my shot since he's the, the nice two-ton gorilla. And I said to him, Hey, Chris, nice to meet you. Um Rich Eisen goes, I know who you are, I'm see you on TV and just how are you enjoying the place. How's it going here? And I'm like, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. But I'm, I'm wondering if I could ask you for a piece of advice. Go for it. Shoot. So I explained to him my conundrum of these banners, asking for autographs for a charity auction on a banner to raise money for charity. And the number of autographs on it would obviously make it more valuable. And I'm just wondering, when is it okay for me to sign these banners. Literally asked Chris Brown, I'm like, I, I figured you were the perfect person to ask, having helped create this place. When is it okay for me to sign these banners? And his response was, How many shows have you done? One? At least one? And I'm like, Yeah, I've done a few. He goes, Then fuck it. Sign them all. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay. And I turned around. And I grabbed a Sharpie and I went right down the line and I signed all the banners. Chris Chris Berman gave me his go-ahead and green light in only the way that Chris could say it and deliver it. And I love that man. And never felt self-conscious about signing anything with an ESPN logo on it ever again. And I'm just thrilled that here I am now, geez, wow, 25 years later with this podcast podcast, just chit-chatting with the man who is as great as they come, as great in all time, and I could not have a podcast series on voices of the NFL without Boomer, the Schwami, the Schwam, Chris Berman. Still to come on Just Getting Started, Chris Collinsworth is going to be on this podcast. Mike Tirico is going to be on this podcast. We've already had some great chats with Jim Nance and Kevin Harlan the voice of Monday Night Football on Westwood One, Michael Strahan, Aaron Andrews, Joe Buck, and Al Michaels. If you missed any of them, please go back and check out our archives and enjoy what uh, you hear. And, of course, give us a five-star rating and a, a subscription, why don't you? That's it for this episode of Just Getting Started.